0: Well, in his letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul led off his glorious epistle with a bold and powerful statement regarding the Christian mission. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The message of the gospel was and is the singular message proclaimed to lost people to lead them to the saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's a message of promise from God that despite humanity, despite our sins, and despite our fallenness, He offers salvation and redemption to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Through his death, the penalty of our sins is paid for, and through his resurrection, eternal life is offered to those who trust in him. It is the single greatest message in human history. This message has transformed individual people, it has transformed whole families, it has transformed communities, it has even transformed nations. Paul goes on to say that the message in the message of the gospel, he says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith and then he quotes Habakkuk 2:4 to say as it is written the righteous man or the just shall live by faith. So the gospel message is first to be believed. You hear the message of salvation, you hear that Christ went to the cross to pay for sin to die for you and rise for you, and you must believe that message. And then the message is to be obeyed by faith. As you walk and live your life, you're living life in light of the reality of the fact that you have been saved. So it's both believed and obeyed. But what is the basis of this faith? We know that the basis of justification, the being made right with God, the basis of that is the righteousness of Christ. But what is to be believed, the actual substance of that, is really built on the character of God. If God is offering salvation, and God is trustworthy, then the promise can be taken on full faith. If God was prone to be whimsical or change his mind or to lie and not tell the truth, then if he says you can have salvation, then you don't even know if you can believe him or not. But if God is, his word is steadfast and if his character is true and he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he will do, then you can trust him and therefore you can believe wholeheartedly in the message of salvation. Again, this is on the character of God who makes promises to his people. But this leads us to ask this question. From where does this promise originate? After all, Jesus doesn't just arrive on earth in the first century and give this brand new message that no one had ever heard before or there was no provision made for this message. This wasn't brand new information. Now, there's a progressive revelation of this. They didn't have all the information that they had before, but this was a message that was building There had already been a promise made to God's people. And the question is, well then, who specifically, to whom did God make this promise? And the answer is to the people of Israel. The Messiah who was to come was first and foremost a Jewish Messiah. And we're going to talk about that today. That's why Jesus says in John 4.22 that salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is Jewish in every possible human sense. This is also why, wrapped in his bold declaration of being unashamed of the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1.16 at the end of saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God, to salvation to everyone who believes. He then adds this in to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile, meaning the whole world at that point. But God has made a promise, a specific promise that he intended to keep. Which is why when Jesus first came to the earth, it was to his people that he went to first. He went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the Bible tells us. But upon his arrival, he's going to need to get the message out to these people. And so he commissions 12 messengers, 12 disciples, 12 apostles, to go and tell this people that their Messiah has arrived. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you would, turn with me to... Uh, Matthew chapter ten, Matthew chapter ten. Now, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been doing ministry all by himself. It began way back into the first, or the, excuse me, the third chapter of Matthew at his baptism. That's really the sort of the, the coronation and the beginning of his earthly ministry. And then it continues into his teaching ministry, which is characterized in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then also through his miraculous healing and powerful ministry in verse, uh, chapters 8 and 9. And now he's going to expand the ministry beyond himself and to these 12 carefully chosen disciples. And so look at Matthew chapter 10 with me. Many of these verses at the beginning are going to feel very familiar to you, but we're going to read the whole passage in context. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus summoned His twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. If it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than the day, in the day of judgment than for that city. And so Jesus is giving this charge. Now we've spent the last couple of months really looking at only a few of these verses. We spent a lot of time on the 12 uh, disciples here. I think we spent seven weeks working through that to kind of give you a better sense of who these men are. You're going to see them a lot in the, ne- in the coming chapters of this gospel. But we noted that Jesus has already called these 12 to be disciples, to follow him. What is a disciple? That's always a good question to ask. A disciple is a learner or a student. So Jesus is asking and calling these men to come and follow him as students, to learn from him. And when we talk about discipleship even today, all of us are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to, to learn from him, to listen to him, to sit at his feet, if you will, and, uh, and invest your time uh, into his teaching. But then he gives his authority uh, to these same men, and he calls them to be apostles So not just disciples, every single person who learns from Jesus and follows him as a disciple, but not everybody is an apostle, and actually very few people have ever been called apostles. But an apostle is one who's sent specifically by Jesus and bears his authority. They have no inherent authority on their own, but they're bearing the authority of the one who sent them, and they're going to minister under the banner of Jesus Christ. So they go to a city... And they say, how are you doing? My name is Nathan. I'm here, not on my own authority, I'm here on behalf of Jesus Christ, and I'm here to do His work and preach His gospel to you, so you turn and trust in Him. So that was the whole purpose. It's an ambassador, it's an emissary going out to lost people. Matthew names the twelve disciples, and again, we looked at all of those men. But then Jesus sends them out. Before He sends them out, though, He gives them their marching orders. He gives them instruction Now, the totality of the instruction really starts in verse 5 and truthfully goes all the way to verse 42. And we're going to spend the next several weeks kind of working through this. But really, there's different stages and phases of his instruction. And you're going to find this as we study, too, that Jesus, even though he speaks to the immediate moment, he's actually kind of speaking, in some cases, past the moment and sees farther out. A lot of times he would see things um, I don't want to say nonlinear, but he would sort of speak past an issue in, in the present time and go to the future. You're going to figure out what I'm talking about more as we go through the text, and we're going to see that in the coming weeks. But it's important to know that his words here are infused with layers of meaning. Again, some of what he says is applicable for the next couple of weeks on their journey, and then some things are going to be applicable for these men for years to come, and there's even things that bear weight for us even today. But for our time this morning, we're going to look primarily at his instructions for their immediate journey. So right smack dab in the middle of right what they're about to do over the next couple of weeks, he's going to to talk to them about that very thing. Now, perhaps the most important part of the instruction comes in the first few verses. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus is telling them where to go, and then followed by he's telling them what to do and what to say in verses 7 and 8. And then verses 9 through 15, he's going to tell them how to conduct themselves. How do you go about doing this ministry? And we're going to talk about that. But first, let's, let's talk about where they are to go, verses 5 and 6. Look at that with me, 5 and 6. He says, These twelve, Jesus, sent out after instructing them, and here, here comes the where to go, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. So he's telling them where they can't go. Then verse 6, But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now very quickly you're going to see here with me that this where is also a who. Who? It's not just geography, it also is talking about people. Now Jesus is about to send these twelve. If you look at Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 7, notes he actually sends them off in pairs. So they pair up and they go out together, two by two. Um, He tells them, first of all, as he's sending them, where not to go. He first says, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Now if you were to look at a map of ancient Israel... Geographically, this means that they are not to go north. So they're in Galilee right now. He says, I don't want you to go north. Don't go to the cities of, of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, he also doesn't want them to go east and go to the region of Decapolis. Those are, again, Gentile cities and pagan cities. These are all strongholds of, of Gentile uh, people. And what is a Gentile? Well, a Gentile is a non-Jewish person, and for their purposes, this person or these people would have been pagans. They worshipped uh, false gods and had false practices, and they didn't have the same uh, conduct and code of ethic and morality that the Jews had, because they had received the revelation of God. And so all these other religions out there, all these other peoples are worshipping whatever false gods they were desiring to worship. They had, And in, if you were to do the study, they did a lot of really terrible things. They sacrificed their children to different gods of Baal and Moloch. Um, They had all kinds of, um, I'm going to be very careful with what I say here in front of some of the younger ears, but they just did a lot of stuff they weren't supposed to do. Um, And and the Jews were keenly aware of the, the pagan practices and the immoral practices of these people. Again, they're going to go to them eventually, but for right now, Jesus doesn't want them to go north, doesn't want them to go east. There is a a historical redemptive reason that they're not going to the Gentiles first, which we're going to talk about. But even on a practical level, why are they not going to Gentiles first, practically speaking? Because if the Gentile, if if the Jews go to the Gentiles right now and they say to them, "The kingdom of heaven is at hand," the Gentiles are going to look at them and say, "I have no idea what you're talking about. Kingdom of what heaven and who? Who is Messiah?" They have no concept of Messiah. They have no concept of any of this stuff. So on a pragmatic level, Jesus doesn't introduce them to these people first. They're going to people who really should know what they're talking about. That's pragmatically the first reason. Uh, But there's also, like I said, a larger reason. So they're not going to the Gentiles. He also tells them not to go to the Samaritans either. Remember, the disciples are, are currently with Jesus. They're in Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. So, Israel's broken up into three main regions. Galilee is in the north, Samaria is in the middle, and then Judah is in the bottom. And Jerusalem, the capital city, is in the bottom in Judah as well. But the region of Samaria is in the middle, and it's to their immediate south. So, they're in Galilee. Immediately south is Samaria. And he doesn't want them to go south either. Again, there's more than geographical reasons he doesn't want them to go to the Samaritans just yet. Who are the Samaritans? We talked about the Gentiles. Who are the Samaritans? They were Jews who were left behind during the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BC, who then, in their desperation, began to intermarry with other pagan people and adopt other religious things. So they're their Judaistic religion, so they were Jews, but they began to bring in other practices. They became uh, syncretistic. It means it was a designer religion. They're mixing and matching from all other religions out there and sort of making this hodgepodge of worship that was completely different from what the Bible had taught. And so they were a mix and match people at that point. And the Jews, they detested the Samaritans for several reasons. First of all, in terms of ethnically, they regarded them as half-breeds, which is kind of nasty, but that's how they saw them. But, more, but worse than that, than even their, their ethnic heritage, they detested them because they regarded them as having turned their back on God. When, when, when we went through the exile and we were all taken off into captivity into Babylon, we stayed there for 70 years and we waited on the Lord. Even in our sinfulness, we waited on God and we wanted to return to, to uh, Israel. We wanted to come back and worship in the temple. But you guys, you stayed behind. You did not wait for God. You spent 70 years intermarrying with everybody else and you kind of did whatever you wanted to do. It was, it's like when the cats away, the mice play. So they regarded them as, as basically detractors and compromisers and they derided them for that. And so the Jews and the Samaritans did not have a good relationship at all. Uh, In many cases, when they were traveling north to south, it was not uncommon for Jews coming north and south to actually go out and around Samaria because they didn't want to even set foot in the land. And they wouldn't even cross the street to spit on a Samaritan. That was how much they hated one another. But they, however, are going back to the disciples. They're not to go south to Samaria. They are to stay in the region of Galilee. And their charge is to stay there and travel from town to town and to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, when I say the house of Israel, we're talking about Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, the people of God. Why does Jesus go to them first? Well, the answer is because He promised to. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. promise made by God in Genesis 12 really starts a chain reaction that ripples all throughout the entire Old Testament. Genesis 12 is really the first expression of what we know to be the Abrahamic covenant, which is a, a covenant that make, God makes with Abraham where he promise, promises him uh, a land and a people. He promises he's going to establish Uh, really a whole seed, a whole uh, family of people, a whole race of people through his line. But this man, who at the time was called Abram, he's not called Abraham until later, but Abram, he's living in the land of Ur, uh, of the Chaldeans, basically where we understand to be ancient Babylon. But Ur of the Chaldeans, he had no children He had no children, and he had no idea of what land the Lord was talking about, but still, the Lord made a promise to him. So look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Again, God is going to Abram. It says here, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Again, this is the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. God makes this promise to him. He says, I'm going to give you a land. You're going to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and I'm going to bring you to this other land, Canaan. I'm going to give it to you as an inheritance. That's going to be your land and I'm going to give you a bunch of families and children. Again, they have no kids yet. How is this going to happen? That's the story of Abraham. But he makes this promise. But more than that, Abram and his family, his whole heritage, is going to be a blessing to the whole world. And that expands over the course of time here. But he promises he's going to make him into a great nation. He promises he's going to bless the whole world. Later in verses 6 and 7, God takes him to the land itself and has him walk around and see it, looks at it, the land it's going to give to him. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abraham is promised a son. He later receives that son miraculously. That son is Isaac. In chapter 17, he receives the sign of this covenant, which is the sign of circumcision, And then Abraham fathers Isaac. Isaac fathers Jacob. Jacob. Jacob, after an encounter with the Lord in Genesis 28, is given a new name in Genesis 32. Jacob, his name, is changed to Israel because he struggled with God. And so this man, this Jacob, is renamed by the Lord Israel. And it's Jacob's sons who become the heads of the twelve tribes. He's got twelve sons, and all of them have a lineage that goes down through the ages. And so even then, in Jesus' time, there were twelve tribes in Israel. They all identified that way, and they could trace all their heritage right back to Jacob, right to Isaac, right to Abraham. Fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David, King David That there's going to be a coming king, one of his sons, who's going to sit on his throne. He's not just going to sit on his throne for a couple of years. He's going to sit on the throne of David forever. So now the promise extends not just to the Abrahamic covenant, but also to the Davidic covenant. That not only are they going to have a land and a people, but they're also going to have an eternal king. Who's going to reign over them and over the whole world from that spot. Again, this is the Davidic covenant. And all of this we just start to see in the Old Testament laid out promise after promise after promise made by God to this people. But then Israel falls away from God and they rebel and they sin against Him and they're taken again into bondage not by the Egyptians for 400 years but they're taken into bondage elsewhere. The kingdom is divided. The Assyrians take part of them and the Babylonians take another part of them. And they're being led away to captivity. And as they're being led away from their city, from their homes, many of them have already died. As they're being led away, they're crying out to God. And the essence of their cry is this, that God has forgotten His promise. He's promised us a land. We don't even have our land anymore. He's promised us Uh, uh, this this people, this inheritance of people, but that we're dying off and there's no hope for the future. He's promised us a king, but our king is gone. God made all these promises and is he going to deliver? How is he going to deliver? They struggle with this question. The question again, has God forgotten his promise? I'll tell you that question rings in our ears even today. Has God forgotten us? Has He just left and gone away and we're just stuck here waiting around? God, where are You? That was their cry. So had God forgotten? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 toward the end of the Old Testament. This is in the major prophets. Jeremiah 31. As we're going to see, there's a companion passage here from Jeremiah 31 to Ezekiel 36. We're just going to look at Jeremiah today. And here's kind of the story of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these prophets. While Jeremiah was prophesying to the Israelites, uh, they were left behind in Israel. So the ones who eventually turned over and became the Samaritans at the time, during this period of captivity... The prophet Jeremiah is in Israel, and he's prophesying and preaching to those people. And while most of the region or most of the country has gone away to Babylon, Ezekiel is the prophet in Babylon preaching and ministering to those people. So God has put two prophets in two locations, basically giving the same kinds of prophetic information to both groups of people with the same intention. So again, both prophets, however, they record this message from the Lord regarding His covenant promise. This is fascinating. We're going to pick this up in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This is a remarkable promise. A remarkable promise. And as we're going to see, and as we do see, even in the Last Supper, this covenant extends beyond the bounds of Israel, even to all of us. We are participants of this new covenant, and we'll talk about that as time comes on here. But again, this new covenant, that's what it's called, the New Covenant. God has made promises in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Davidic covenant, and all of that has still remained. That hasn't been washed away. Those are called unconditional covenants. It wasn't like He said, okay, if you do this, I'll do that. He says, I'm going to put a a, a king on your throne. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. These are unconditional promises that God has made. But now He's entering into a, a new kind of covenant. This is a new thing. He said, this isn't like the other covenants I made before, like the Mosaic Covenant. This is very different. Ezekiel 36 includes in his version of this covenant that God chooses to cleanse them. I'm going to cleanse you. You've been iniquity and in sin. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to give you a new heart. And he says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. And he says, I'm gonna, when, I, when I do this, when I put my spirit within you, and when I give you a new heart, I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. I'm going to cause you from the inside out to obey my statutes. That's what he says in Jeremiah. He says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. Because, again, law-keeping, external obedience, it means you get a whole bunch of lists of things to do. You can either do them or you don't do them. You're just obeying rules and laws externally. And there's really nothing going on in the heart and the mind. You're just obeying. But this is very different. This has to do with the Spirit working inside of you. This has to do with your conscience. This has to do with God changing the way you think and feel and believe. He transforms people from the inside out. This is is what's so remarkable about this covenant. Again, This is a reaffirmation that God has not forgotten His people. He has not forgotten them. He was coming for them. But even in the midst of this, again, this covenant, this promise was made 600 years before Jesus shows up, but even from that time to that time, they still strayed. They came back to Israel. They rebuilt everything. They promised to be faithful. But by the time of Malachi, they're off the deep end again. Later in Jeremiah 50, he notes, My people have become lost sheep, and their shepherds have led them astray. So not only had the people gone astray, but all their leaders were going astray too. Ezekiel 34 declares that they were all scattered and wandering throughout the mountains. And by the time Jesus arrives in Israel, they are all lost sheep. And when Jesus sees them in Matthew 9.36, and we saw this several months ago, when He sees them in Matthew 9.36, the text says that He feels compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He came to His people, and He looked out, and they were a complete train wreck. And instead of actually standing back and judging them and attacking them, the Bible teaches us that he feels compassion. Study that word out. It's, his guts kind of went out to them. And his heart went out to them. And he felt such anguish and such sadness and such love for these people because they were totally lost and they needed him. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. So again, this becomes the basis of everything up to this point. There's so much packed into this, so much promise, so much anticipation. All of the Old Testament is leading up to this one point, really. The mission of the Twelve is to travel to all the Israelites in the Galilean region. Now, they're going to go elsewhere later on. They're going to go all over Israel, and in the book of Acts, they're going to go everywhere, all over the world later on. But for right now, as they're getting started, they're in Galilee, and they're going to go to every single Israelite, every single Jewish person they can find, and they're going to tell them that the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. He says to them, Go, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now as they go to these people, to these wandering, straying people who are so distressed and dispirited and all over the place, when they go to them, what are they to do? Look at verse 7. Verse 7. He says, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first part of their mission involves preaching. They're to become preachers, all of them. This word for preaching, keruso in the Greek, is, is really a heralding. It's a proclaiming. It's a getting up and saying, hear ye, hear ye, and delivering a message. Again, there's a difference between preaching and teaching. I could stand up there and just give you facts and information, and I could teach you but a proclamation is very different. I think you know the difference between preaching and teaching. They're there to proclaim this good news to these people. They're going to go to these people who are distressed and dispirited and, and shake them verbally and say, come and see the Lord. So their job is to preach to these people, but what is the content of their preaching? It's this message. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now obviously, that's a shorthanded phrase. They don't just walk into a city and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have a nice day and leave, right? No, there's more to that. They minister to these people. They unpack and explain that statement. But really, what this is up to this point is the, the message of the kingdom of heaven being at hand. This is the story that Jesus, the Messiah, has arrived. He's here. And the good news is that he's come to save his people. There is salvation for you. There's a shepherd now in Israel, not like those other shepherds that abused you and led you astray. No, the chief shepherd, the true shepherd, the good shepherd is here for you. And this same message was preached by John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 2. John the Baptist came to the people, the very same people, and he told them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when Jesus shows up in Matthew 4.17, He begins to preach and say the exact same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does it mean to repent? It means turn from your sins. Forsake your old life. All the ways you've been rebelling against God and wandering from God and being a lost sheep. Isaiah 53.6 says that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each of us to His own way. That's the the problem of humanity. That we just dream up whatever we think is the right thing to do, and we say, that sounds good, I'm just going to do that. We don't even ask God or consult His Word to know what He wants. We say, I'm going to live this way because that's what I feel like doing. And we get to the end of our life and we say, well, I hope it's good enough. It's not. It's not. And so the message is repent. Repent. Turn away. Recognize that you've tried to do this your own way. You've sinned against God. You've not followed His commands. You've not lived a perfect and holy life before Him. So turn from that and put your faith in the coming King because His kingdom is at hand. How is it that His kingdom is at hand, is near? Well, it's very simply this. Because when they said this, the King was walking on the earth. Now, we understand theologically, when we talk about all the bells and whistles of theology, that the kingdom, there is a present reality of the kingdom. I mean, every single time a person comes to faith in Christ, the kingdom of heaven is expanding. People are dying and going to heaven to be with Jesus, and they're living their lives for Christ here and now, that there is a sense at which he is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people. That's true. But there's also a future reality as well. Some scholars have even used this phrase that there's already and there's not yet. That there is some kind of a future reality, that there is, he is going to return and establish even more so, even an earthly presence, a a real presence of his completed kingdom. Now scholars have been debating this for years, but what we do know is that at this point in, in redemptive history, Jesus, the king of the universe, is walking around On the earth. And people are walking up and talking to him and praying with him and listening to him. And so when these messengers are going out saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. Because Jesus is here. And, and, salvation is nearer than it's ever been before. Because Jesus is about to go and die and give his life to redeem people and save them. And so they're telling everybody that they see to turn from their sins, to repent, and to trust in the Messiah, the King of the universe. And then to authenticate that message. You could walk into a town. You could walk into Nazareth and say, all right, guys, the kingdom of heaven is here. And people would say, well, that's great. That's what the last guy said six months ago when he came through. So what makes you any different? Well, to authenticate their message, the disciples were given another authority, another power to minister. Look at verse 8. Jesus tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. The same thing that He does in chapters 8 and 9. We spent some time here, right guys? We looked at all of His healing ministry and the power of His ministry. All these miraculous signs that Jesus was doing to authenticate and prove to people that His message was true. All the same power that He had He gave by proxy to these men to perform signs and wonders to validate their message. When they come to a town for the first time and they say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Well, who who says? So what? And all of a sudden, people are brought out and they can heal them. And people who couldn't walk for years all of a sudden are walking and leaping and praising God. And he says, raise the dead. They go to cemeteries and they're raising people from the dead. And they're cleansing people of diseases and leprosy. And they're casting out demon possession. All this kind of stuff. And all all of this would have been undeniable proof to these townspeople that this message is authentic. Because if it wasn't authentic, they couldn't do the power of heaven. They couldn't have this power. And so that's what he says. And so they heal the sick. This occurs all throughout the book of Acts. You read the book of Acts, and this happens quite a bit here. This is a power given to these apostles and those connected to the apostles to authenticate their message, to heal the sick. We don't have any record in the Bible of them raising the dead, but we know that they did this because Jesus says they were going to do this. So we're meant to believe that they were doing that. They were also told to cleanse lepers. Leprosy was a terrible, awful illness that plagued so many people back then. It was a skin disease, a nerve disease, and so they would go through and they would touch them and heal them and cleanse them of their leprosy. It would cast out demons. Again, all these are signs of apostleship. And again, we even see this further verified when it says in verse 5, it's these twelve that Jesus gave this power and authority to do in this mission. These twelve were ministering in this way in the name of Christ. And then he adds this phrase. Freely you received, freely give. Now, when you're given this kind of authority, now, you have to think about who these disciples are and all the goodness of what they had for testimony. And all. We love these guys, right? Well, most of them. All these guys are ministering, but we know they got their problems. James and John, I mean, you give these guys these kind of power and authority, what are they going to do with it? I mean, calling down fire from heaven and all kinds of stuff like that, right? This kind of power could have served to give them sort of a power trip to puff them up. And in, in the sinfulness of our human hearts, there's a temptation to, have, to give preference to people. Someone comes up to you and says, oh, I just need you to heal my, my son or my daughter. And you say, well, what are you going to give me for that power? That's the temptation of the sinful heart, isn't it? But he says to them, don't do that. This is not an issue of pride. This is not an issue of anything. You are to go and give this ministry out to all people. You're to preach this gospel to all people. You're going to go and heal all these people and, and free them from their afflictions. He says, you're going to freely give this away unconditionally. And why? Well, because you received this freely, right? I came to you and called you as disciples. You didn't come to me. I went to you and just gave all of this to you for free. No conditions. I said, you follow me, and you just had to say, yes, Lord. So if I freely gave this to you, then you are also to freely give this to other people. The Christian ministry is not a ministry of loopholes and hitches and secret promises and backdoor negotiations. We don't exchange miracles and power and authority and message and preference and all these kinds of things. No, this is a freely given ministry. Oftentimes, the church is taken advantage of because of this. Usually, when people want to profit from the church, if they're not really interested in the things of God, but they want something for free, or they want preference, or they want sympathy, or whatever they want for themselves, for their ego, they just go from church to church. And there, there are people, my friends, who that, they make a business. Every six months, they go from church to church, and they just take whatever they can get, and they go. And you know what happens? The church just gives. Now, coming in the door, we don't know who they are. And so we want to freely give as much as we can. Now, we exercise discernment, but the idea is that this ministry has not changed. Because we have received God's grace and mercy so freely, why would we not also give our ministry away freely? He says, freely you've received, freely give This is the essence of this ministry, a generous and kind and selfless gift, freely with grace and generosity. And then the Lord transitions to really from the the who and the where to the what and now to the how. Now they're going to go and do this ministry. He's going to tell them how he wants this ministry done. I want mean, you to notice here that Jesus doesn't just say, well, you guys can figure it out. Whatever seems to work best for you, just do that. He actually gives them instructions here. He gives them instructions. Look at verses um, eight and nine. What is the ministry to look like? How are they going to travel? What do they bring? Where do they stay? How, how are they going to do this? Verses eight and nine, or uh, nine and ten, excuse me, nine and ten really become the issue of provision. 9 and 10, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. I find it interesting, and I've heard this many, many times, interesting to me that some people have actually used these verses to argue for the fact that pastors and missionaries, whatever it may be, uh, should not receive compensation in the ministry. I've actually seen this a lot. Um, this whole this old adage of well you know the lord wants a servant to be humble so we'll keep him poor that whole idea of not compensating and not paying those who are in the ministry i had a pastor once tell me and he told his to his church he said you don't pay me to preach you pay me so that i can preach it's very different in the mindset now granted no one gets into the ministry for profit if they do they should be out of the ministry you should drive them out of the ministry but the idea here is that Jesus says that those who are doing this ministry are worthy of support. And it's really interesting because the verses here actually argue for the exact opposite of what that thing I always hear. It's clearly taught here that the, Jesus uh, instructs his disciples not to take anything with them. So when you go on this journey here in Galilee to all these people, he says, I want you. He says, first, Not to acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money bill. Don't don't bring anything with you. I mean, if you got you know a couple nickels in your pocket to get from here to there, that's one thing. But don't don't pack extra cash with you. Don't bring your savings with you. And don't go and try to earn money while you're out. Their primary responsibility is to preach the gospel. Not to be tent-making as they go. That was the charge. Likewise, verse ten, he says, "Don't bring a bag." In other words, don't pack a lot of items. Don't bring a suitcase. He says, "I don't want you even to bring two coats with you." They would have had an inner garment and an outer garment, but they would have had wanted to have extra things with them. I mean, they're going to go and be sleeping on the ground in some places, and they're going to travel over here, travel over there. So I don't want you to bring two coats. Don't bring an extra pair of sandals. Don't bring any other provisions. Bring nothing. The idea is that I want you to go into this ministry and travel around the region of Galilee as is. As is. That was his instruction to them. And the question then is, well, how are they going to survive for the next couple of weeks? They don't have any money. They don't have any provisions, no food. They only have the clothes on their back. They got one pair of sandals, maybe a walking stick if they got it, but there's, there's no other provisions with them. How are they going to survive? And the answer is, the Lord will provide through the kindness and the generosity of other people. That's what he's going to do. And he gives them this reason at the end of verse 10. He says, why why am I sending you off this way? The end of verse 10, for the worker is worthy of his support. The worker is worthy of the support. This truth is taught elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9.14. Paul uses this same phrase as well as 1 Timothy 5.17 and 18. This is a, a prevailing theme. Not just in the New Testament, but it's also derived from the Old Testament as well. And the reason God does this for His workers is because He wants, God wants His servants to be wholly focused on the Gospel ministry. Not in bivocational labor, not in fundraising, not in menial tasks. God wants his ministers to focus, as Acts 6.4 says, in devotion to the ministry of the word and prayer. That is ultimately what God wants for his laborers. But God is also teaching something else here, not just for those who would support the ministry, but to the ministers themselves. He's teaching the disciples a valuable lesson That they are to trust him. God, we're going out on faith here. We don't have anything to our name. Like, if I get a hole in one of my shoes, or if my coat gets stolen from me, that happened in ancient Israel. Or if I don't have any money to get food tomorrow, or like, what if we're in the middle of on a long road and there's no town? Like, what, what do we do, Lord? The idea is that God is going to provide for his ministry. He always does, doesn't he? We even see that here. He's always provided for our church in every possible respect. And I'll, this is an aside here, but how many times, and for those of you who've been around for a few years, you know, a seasoned person here is like nine years, so you know because we're a church plant, it's supposed to be funny. But I mean, how many times have we come to a problem and thought to ourselves, well, how are we going to solve this? And lo and behold, the Lord just provides and then afterwards we're like what were we worried about it got taken care of every single time he always provides for his ministry always always because God is faithful and he keeps his promises that's a reoccurring theme here but he does all this to the generosity of others look at verses 11 and 12 this is how they're going to get the job done this is how it's going to happen verse 11 And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city and as you enter the house, give it your greeting. So here's the thing. When you come to a new town, he says, you're going to go and ask around and you're going to ask who is worthy to take in the ministers of the Lord. Now, when he says worthy here, he doesn't mean good enough. All right, who's good enough to, to bring us into their house? That's not the sentiment at all. The idea of worthiness is who is honorable enough To see the need and to meet the need. Who is honorable enough in this town to bring in the Lord's ministers and keep them there so they can minister in that town for however long they're going to be there? Who's going to care for the king's servants? That's the idea. And when they find someone, they are to stay there. This is very interesting. They're not to bounce around from house to house and taste everybody's cooking in town. They're not to go and try to, well, we're staying at this house. and Oh, well, so-and-so, he's got a bigger house and he said we can go stay with him. Have a nice day. We're going to go to the, the big house. No, that's not, that's not the idea. It says when you find a home and they bring you in, stay with them. Let them care for you. Stay in that house until you leave and give them your greetings. Say, thank you for letting us in. We're ministers of the gospel and we're here to serve you as well. That was the sentiment here. And if they're finding someone to stay, there, to stay there, and they're going to give that house the blessing, the Lord's blessing. Look at verse 13. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. Say, the peace of the Lord beyond this house. However, if, it find, if they find that people have become hostile to the message, because you might take one of these people in, and say, yes, I'm here to do the Lord's work and I'm here to help you. And, and all of a sudden you realize what this ministry really entails. Maybe people in town get angry and they come and they storm your house and they say, get these guys out of here. And, and you turn to become hostile as well. And you say, that's it. You, know, you guys got to get out of here. I'm, I'm done with you. If they turn hostile, and it says here, if, the, if they're not worthy, if they will not accept you and don't, they don't heed your words, take back your blessing of peace. Maybe they just welcomed you in initially, but over time they turned against you. Withdraw the peace of the Lord from the house. And you might ask the question, well, who wouldn't receive the Lord's messengers? Who wouldn't take these guys in? Well, those who have hardened their hearts to the ministry or to the message themselves. Because that was Israel's problem for centuries. They, even though they had access to the message, they had access to God himself they still hard, hardened their heart against Him over and over and over and over again. But out of all the people in the world, the Jews should have accepted the arrival of the Messiah. But we know that most of them did not. Most of the people that Jesus came to did not. And John 1.11 even says that Jesus came to His own people, but His own did not receive Him. He had promised to come back for them. He had promised to come to them. And when he did, they rejected him. Paul has the same experience even years later. Paul, after rejection, after rejection, after rejection, Paul in Romans 9 finally confesses in his letter. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me and the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why Paul? He says because my people won't accept the message. My own kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jews, the people that I grew up with. I went to temple with these people. And now I come to know the Messiah, the Christ, and I come back to them to the same people. He says it's to the point now where I could wish myself accursed if only they would come to Christ. Paul actually wished hell and damnation on himself if it meant the salvation of the Jews. His own people rejected him and it grieved him so dearly to the point where he just had enough and he moved on and he became the apostle to the Gentiles because they listened. But here in Matthew 10, Jesus anticipates that his apostles are going to suffer the same kind of rejection and so he gives this to them as well. Verses 14-15. He says, Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off from your feet. Truly I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. This act of shaking the dust off of your feet has a long history in Jewish tradition. When the Jews traveled to uh, other regions, in Gentile regions, and then they came back and returned to their homeland of Israel. They would customarily shake off their shoes. They would shake off the dust from their feet because they did not want to bring in Gentile soil into Israel. Now, some of it is a little bit um, superstitious, but the idea, it was symbolic for them, that we regard Israel as holy. Even the land is holy. And so they have this idea of, of, of showing really a, a disfavor toward other lands and other peoples. Again, a symbolic gesture, but oftentimes the gesture became one of contempt and even derision. And so if you were to shake off the dust from your feet, it means that whoever you have left their home or their property, that they are no longer worthy of even to have their dust on the bottom of your shoes. So it was a gesture of contempt and separation. But Jesus doesn't tell them to do this to the Gentiles or even to the Samaritans. He tells them to do this to Jewish towns that do not receive the Messiah. This is astounding. That you would even shake off the dust from your feet, even here, the land of God, the people of God, and the land that we were given, this is the land of promise, and we're going to shake off the dust. Yes, you are. It's not about land. It's not about all this other stuff. It's about me, Jesus would have said. And so they were to do that. Paul does this later in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 18. It's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of judgment. You have turned your heart away from God, and there's a division, there's a separation now that we're no longer going to, I'm not going to bring your dust into my land, so to speak. And he says, even the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah Who the land the Lord destroyed by fire for their abominations, even Sodom and Gomorrah, would be better off in the end than the Jewish lands and the towns and the cities that rejected the Messiah. Can you fathom that? Even the cities that God destroyed in anger are better off than people who have rejected the message of the gospel. It's really astounding. And we know that many regions, many regions rejected the apostles. Many of them. And by the time we get to the book of Acts, there's widespread persecution erupting in Israel against the, Jew, against the disciples and against the apostles to the point where they drive them out of the land. And for that, the Lord prophesied the destruction of the temple in 70 AD as well as the collapse of Judaism as they knew it. Jesus even judged Israel itself. Go to Israel right now, there's no temple. It's gone. It's all gone. And the Jews themselves became wanderers again for the next 20 centuries. Now, of course, the gospel continued to go out. It went first to the Jews. Again, Paul says to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. It went first to the Jews, but then as we're going to see as it progresses, the gospel then goes to the Samaritans, and they receive Christ. The gospel then goes to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to the farther reaches of the world. The gospel is proclaimed to the whole world. Matthew 24, 14 says, And the gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. So, even though that started with going to the Jews in Israel, it was meant to go everywhere. And you read the, you know, the book of Ephesians talking about the, div- the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, Jesus says it's been destroyed, it's been washed away. And so all of us have access to Christ by faith, whether you're of Jewish heritage or you're not. It doesn't make a bit of difference to God. If you come to Christ by faith, He will accept you. And the promise of the new covenant, even though it was a covenant made with the people of Israel, that covenant has been extended to all of us. It encompasses all of us. It's actually the the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, chapter uh, chapter 12 of Genesis, that says that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the pinnacle of that promise is that all of this lineage, all this heritage, went and culminated in one person that Jesus himself was of the seed of Abraham. He, I mean, he traces lineage all the way back, but all the way through. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He is a Jewish Messiah, but yet he is the Savior of the whole world. The whole world can come to Christ by faith and find the same forgiveness, the same justification, the same eternal life. It's a remarkable promise. It truly is. Now, Of course, there are still descendants of Jacob who even today embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And while Israel as a nation rejected Jesus, he is still saving the Jewish people today, along with people from every other tongue, tribe, and nation to his glory. But there is coming a day, according to the Scriptures, when Israel, the Bible says, will mourn over their past rejection. Zechariah says they will look on the one whom they've pierced and they will mourn as one who is mourning over the death of an only son. The Bible teaches that they will repent, they will mourn over the crucifixion of Christ, they'll repent of their sins, and they will turn and put their faith in Yeshua, Jesus. And Romans 11.26 says, And then all Israel will be saved. Now we're going to talk about that in the future a lot more, but for today, I want to bring this back here. The important thing for us to talk about and know here is that God keeps his promises. He is a trustworthy God. If it was up to us to have promises kept based on our character and our upkeep of these promises, it would fail. But God keeps promises. He kept promises for Israel. He will keep promises even for us. He does keep his word. And while they doubted his first arrival, my friends, we need not doubt his second coming as well. Because again, this all comes back around. The question for them when they were wandering in the wilderness is has God forgotten us? And there are so many people today, right now, who look around the world and they say to themselves, has God forgotten us? We've been talking about the coming of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years Surely, that's that's enough time has passed that I think He's forgotten what He's going to come back and do. The Bible says that God keeps His promises. If Jesus says, I will come again to you and I will bring you to Myself and I will take you to the Father and you'll always be with Me, if He says that to us, we can trust Him. And there is coming a day, my friends, when Jesus Christ will come again and you will all see him. The whole world will see him. He will come and he will judge the nations and he will establish his righteousness on earth forevermore. Jesus Christ is coming again. And my question to you is are you ready? Have you prepared your heart for the return of Christ? If you're not sure, talk to me, talk to anyone who loves the Lord. And ask the question, do I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Have I turned from my sins and put my trust in Him? The Bible says if you do, if you do trust in Him, you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank You for Your loving kindness. Thank You, Lord, for being true to Your Word, for being a covenant-keeping God who does not waver, you don't change your mind. You don't waffle on decisions. You're not flimsy. The, the Bible teaches that you are immutable. You do not change. That you have purposed to save. You've purposed to redeem. you purposed to send your son, and you've purposed to send him back here again. And so our faith and our hope is in you. And Lord, I even pray today that if there's anyone who isn't sure, that they really know You and have turned from their old life of sin and placed their faith on Jesus Christ as their only hope and their only salvation. I pray that they would do that even today. We don't come to You by being good people, doing good works. We come to You on our face, in humility, broken by sin. But we come to You as lost sheep who need a shepherd. And the Bible says that you are the good shepherd. That we are to come to you, for you are gentle and humble in heart. And that when we come to you, we will find rest for, your, for our souls. And so I pray, Lord, that you would grant rest and faith and assurance and peace to those who come to you. Thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.